begin found in Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 11 but when Christ appeared as high priest of good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. April the 18th, 1521, something very important happened. In the history of the church, this, of course, is um, I don't know, the 29th of October. Normally, this time of year, our minds turn to the Protestant Reformation, October the 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and unintentionally started the Protestant Reformation. God used his attempt to point out some abuses within the church to really kickstart a a recovery of the true gospel. It's been 506 years since that event took place. But in all of surrounded the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, all that surrounded the life of Martin Luther, nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church was only a very small portion. In fact, if you go back and read those theses, you will think this was written by a Catholic monk, because he was. There was much that, uh, that he really hadn't come to believe that he later would, and he said he only allowed for the republication of those 95 Theses to show that he had no agenda, that he was trying to start this great movement. It was, it was truly a work of God because he was still very ignorant. But an event that was, I, I would say, much more important took place in April, f- four years later. Frederick the Wise was the protector of Germany. Because of the, uh, the event of the Reformation and because of the movement of Luther's um, preaching had begun to take such root, the Pope called Luther to Rome, intended to have Luther to come to Rome in order to be tried for his, uh, his works, his preaching, his books, the things that he had published. But Frederick, who was the defender of Germany, said, No, he is a German monk. He is going to be tried on German soil. And so a diet, which was basically uh, an imperial council, was convened in Worms. Now, you children, you, you see uh, this written down. You see the diet of worms. doesn't mean he ate grubs. It was a council in a city where Luther was to be tried. Charges were brought against him. He was being tried for heresy. No small thing. Luther arrived in Worms on April the 16th and was to appear the next day on the 17th at 4 p.m., which he thought would be a time where he would come in, there would be a debate that was started. He would have the opportunity to defend his, his teaching on justification and so forth. But that was not the case. When he arrived, he was asked two questions. On the table, his books and the literature which he had published had been spread out. And Luther was asked, are these your books? To which he replied, yes. The second question he was asked is, will you 
recant. Will you take it back? He had no opportunity to defend. He tried to start a debate, but he was of no avail. Are these your books? Will you recant them? Will you admit that you're wrong and burn them? Will you put them away? Will you take it back? You know, we're looking at this from the vantage point of 500 years of history. In our minds, Martin Luther is a giant in the Christian faith. But here he was, a single, solitary monk, standing against the imperial force of the Roman church. He knew what the consequences would be if he did not recant. He would be considered a heretic. He would likely be burned. He would be executed in some fashion, but it would be a a dreadful end to his pitiful life. One might ask the question, what would it hurt to, to just say you recant, even if you didn't? Why was this such a critical point in the life of Luther? Luther asked for 24 hours to think about it. A recess. My wife and I, we like to watch Ben Matlock and... Uh, Matlock always, he's on the case and some new evidence comes in and he, he asked the judge for a brief recess. Well, Luther asked for a recess, but it was 24 hours. Everything hangs in the balance. If he recants, if he gives up, then he will have denied the gospel. He will have denied the fact that God justifies sinners on the basis of faith, really on the basis of the merits of Christ. It would be tantamount to denying Christ. Jesus himself said, If you're ashamed of me and of my words, then I will be ashamed of you when I appear in the glory of my Father of the holy angels. He said that if any man hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brother, his sister, even his own life, he is not worthy to be considered my disciple. He said that a man should take up his cross daily and follow me. And all of these these scriptures, they are to us very devotional. Because our Christianity is not for us a matter of life and death. We're here freely. We live in a country where the freedom of speech, at least temporarily, is still a major matter of concern. Sure, people are not always appreciative of the message of the gospel, but we're not under violent persecution as many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. But Luther was in a moment where he knew that he had to deny Christ or to be willing to die a dreadful death. It was a very serious and a very sober matter. The next day, April the 18th, Luther arrived back before the diet at 4 p.m., same place, same time, same people, same questions. They ask again, are these your books? To which he replied once more, yes. And then they ask, will you recant? Martin Luther's answer is a very famous answer one which you have likely heard. Having the context in which he gave it, let me read once more what he said. Since then, your Sir Majesty and your Lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures... Or by clear reason, for I do not trust either Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, may God help 
me. Amen. This, this principle of the conscience being captive to the Word of God is the bedrock and foundation for what we would call sola scriptura. To have the conscience captive to the Word of God. To be willing to die. To demand that the truth is in the Scripture and not in popes or in creeds. Which have erred. But as we consider this this morning, as, as glorious as this account is and as precious as this event in history is to us today... I just want to turn this question around a bit. And I want to ask you to think honestly and to answer the question yourself, is your conscience captive to the Word of God? It is one thing to remember Luther. It is one thing to celebrate the Reformation and the Reformers and those who have gone before us who have laid their lives down, men like William Tyndale, who spent 12 years as a fugitive and was eventually martyred to give us the Bible in our own language. John Rogers, who was the first martyr of Bloody Mary. Lady Jane Grey, who was a teenager, defended the doctrine of justification before a Roman priest and was beheaded, who was the rightful heir to the throne of England. It's one thing to remember these. It's one thing to, to think warmly about such examples who have gone before us, but it's another thing to share the conviction. Is your conscience captive to the Word of God? This is no small matter. The 1689 Confession of Faith, just building upon what Luther had said before, in chapter 21, paragraph 2, says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and He has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to His Word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commandments out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience, requiring implicit faith or absolute blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. This was a, this was a very important matter in the, in the Reformation was this recovery and understanding of the conscience, the liberty of conscience and the submission of conscience to God and to God's Word. Now, I will confess, as you probably have already deduced, this is not an ordinary sermon. We believe that one of the primary ways in which we are to best communicate God's Word is through verse-by-verse -verse exposition, but we do not believe that that is solely the way which God's Word is to be preached. There is a place, there is room, there are proper times and means for which we should approach the Scripture topically. Theologically, it is necessary to do so. It is useful and helpful to us. And that's what I want to do today as we think about the Reformation, as we think about this whole concept of conscience, as we read passages like Brother Don read in our hearing from 1 Peter chapter 3 about an appeal to God for a good conscience. Or what we read here in Hebrews about how the blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience. As I was preparing this, I really thought it would be good to have an extended period of time to, to really delve into all that the Scripture teaches us here. Because just like we were talking about earlier as far as worldliness, teaching about the, the scriptural doctrine of the conscience is something that we, we're a little anemic on in our day. We live in a day which is filled with all manner of errors and heresies, which error and heresy are not the same, but we have both. There are errors, which could be, for instance, baptism. There are, amongst our uh, 
brothers, our Presbyterian brothers, who would argue for infant baptism. We would argue for baptism of believers. Both positions are not right. One is an error. And yet we still can link arms and see that we are brothers and sisters in the faith. But then there are heresies, which, which we draw a sharp line. As Again, Brother Don mentioned those who believe that baptism is a part of salvation. That it's necessary, that you're born again by water. Well, that's heresy. Those who would deny the doctrine of the Trinity set themselves outside of the Christian faith. That's heresy. Just a, just a small soapbox moment for, me, for you if, you, if you will grant me this. It is a hobby, it seems, within the Reformed camp to be a heresy hunter. And that is so bothersome. It seems today that we are looking for heresy everywhere, and if we can't find it, we will label anything heresy. Not, not, not everyone, but it's just a very common pitfall. To not be able to distinguish between primary and secondary doctrines, not to be able to distinguish between error and heresy. And people who are constantly running around pointing out this person is a false teacher, this person is a heretic, this person is a false teacher, just avoid those people. It is true that we have to point out errors and heresies, and we have to point out false teachers, and we have to do that to an extent. The, the, in fact, the office of an elder is required to do that. He has to be able to hold forth the sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, why? To be able to teach in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict the sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul called out men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. He called out men like Demas. That is necessary. But if that is the hallmark of your quote-unquote discernment ministry, then you are not as discerning as you think. So this is a, it's a very common thing. But the reality is there are errors, there are heresies everywhere. The Christian church is, is constantly, it seemed like, facing division and Civil war and internal cannibalism. On the one hand, you have the woke theology and the, um, the absolving of all uh, ethnic uh, distinctions. On the other hand, you have extreme groups. You have Christian nationalism has now become a, 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 the, the, the kind of the mainstay of the extreme conservative side. And so you have these two are constantly battling with each other. There's no graciousness between them. On one hand, we're saying that we, we must, you know, ignore our heritage. On the other hand, uh, there are those within what we would normally consider sound circles that are saying that you should not even marry outside of your ethnicity. It's just really bizarre how we're seeing these these extreme views. Whatever the extreme opposite of a heresy is, we've got to go to the opposite end without realizing that you're falling in one ditch or the other. And so there are always these things that are just popping up, and it's impossible to keep up with all of it. More than ever, in our lifetime, our consciences must be captive to the, to the Word of God. We need to understand, we need to have informed consciences, we need to be grounded to the Scripture, because we have scandal without, we have political unrest, we're living in a day where we may very well soon begin to share in what our brothers and sisters around the world experience, where our Christianity will cost us something tangibly. Errors and heresy everywhere, unrest and divisiveness. We must be truly, not just in word, but truly a people of the book. And so this whole matter of the conscience is very important. So I, I'm just going to ask, we're gonna do, I'm just going to look at three questions. I'll just keep this as simple as possible and, and try to answer these three questions, uh, both from the voices of the past and, and mainly from the Scripture. Number one, what is the conscience? What is the conscience? Our second question is what does the conscience do? What is the conscience? What is its function? And thirdly, how can we have a clean conscience? 
So what is the conscience? Um, if, if you're reading throughout church history, you'll find that during the Puritan era, there was more written here probably than any other time frame. Uh, Puritans had an area of their theological um, categories that was devoted to cases of conscience. They referred to it as casuistry, okay, or soul care. We, we, um, we not only have lost the word casuistry, we've lost the whole, the whole concept of soul care. And so you read a lot of these old Puritan books, and some of them have been republished by the Banner of Truth, such as um, in the Puritan paperback or whatever. Like, for instance, Thomas Brooks's little work, Precious Remedies, that was a book on casuistry, cases of conscience. So he's talking there about the remedies which God has given against the devices of Satan. So you, you see a lot of this throughout their literature. Let me just give you a few ways that Puritan writers would describe the conscience. And I'll show you how this is, in fact, a, a biblical concept. The Puritans would refer to the conscience as God's deputy. God's deputy. Or his vice regent within us. They would refer to it as God's sergeant or God's judge. At least 30 times in the New Testament, we find the word, which is this word, which is translated as conscience. And we're told that the conscience can be defiled, as we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. Paul warns Timothy about some that will, quote, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the conscience can be defiled, the conscience can be seared. We read in Hebrews chapter 10 that one can even have an evil conscience from which the heart must be cleansed. But the New Testament doesn't stop there. It has much to say about having a, quote, good conscience. We read this even in our passage earlier. About having a good conscience in 1 Peter chapter 3. Brothers, said Paul, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 23.1 Deacons are said that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a Clear conscience. That's one of the requirements, one of the moral requirements for a deacon in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. The conscience can be wounded, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. It can be weak, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, verses 10 and 12 as well. So the New Testament has a lot to say about the conscience. This, this faculty which the Puritans would call God's deputy. It can be weak, it can be wounded. He's given almost personal qualities here. It, it can be good, it can be evil, it can be seared, it can be defiled. In the Old Testament you see the same concept, but stated slightly differently. Because there's no exact equivalent in the Hebrew for the word which the Greek uses and which we translate as conscience. <clears throat> so you often see the conscience being referred to by addressing the inward parts of man. I hold fast my righteousness. I will not let go. Listen, my heart does not reproach me, said Job. Job 27, verse 6. And here's a verse that's... I remember, I remember reading this verse. I was at work. Years ago, I used to run this, uh, this chipper at our lumber yard. And so I had this little makeshift booth... It was about the width of this pulpit, and it was just a box I would get in to get out of the wind. And I would sit in there while the machine was running, and I would read from my Bible. I was reading out of this old um, King James Thompson Chain Study Bible, little bitty tiny print. And I remember reading this verse. I was only about 18. After David's, just speaking, when David, Saul was chasing David, he was going, he hit him in the caves, and David's men said, hey, look, the Lord's delivered him into your, into your hand. Here's your enemy. God's brought him in here. Saul went in there to, to relieve himself, and so he's over there 
you know, not thinking about anyone. And David sneaks up behind him. He cuts a corner off of Saul's robe. And when Saul leaves, he goes out and he says, if I wanted to hurt you, I could have. But I don't. Afterwards, the Bible tells us, I love the way the authorized version says this, this is what's always coming around. David's heart smote him. What does that mean? David's heart smote him. It beat him. You know what it means. If your heart's ever smote you, you know what that means. But I remember reading that, and I was, I was only 18. I thought, Lord, it seems like such a small thing to cut off the cornfish. He could have killed him. And who would have blamed him? David is the rightful man to the throne. He's the one who's been anointed to take the throne. God's chosen king. And here you have this wicked man, man in Saul who is after his life. And he has sought him out. And now God has delivered him into his hand. But David spares his life and just cuts off a corner of his robe. Why would his heart smite him or strike him because of that? So it's... it's it's a reference to the accusing conscience. And David understood that Saul was still anointed. He was still the anointed king, and he didn't want to, to in any way rebel against God's authority. To rebel against Saul would have been to rebel against God in his mind. And so his heart smote him about this small thing. It seems we live in a day when people's hearts don't smite them about much at all. It's a reference to the conscience. Charles Spurgeon said, Conscience is one of the most, it's one of the worst lodgers to have in your house when he gets quarrelsome. A guilty conscience is one of the curses of the world. It puts out the sun and takes away the brightness of the moonbeam. Nothing is bright when the conscience is quarrelsome. There is nothing beautiful to the man that has a guilty conscience. He needs no accusing. Everything accuses him. That's why the Bible says the wicked flees when no one's pursuing. Because his guilty conscience is always after him. And he thinks everyone else is after him. So, so what is the conscience? William Ames, who was a Puritan writer, borrowed from Thomas Aquinas. He gave this definition. I, I thought about not including his definitions, but I... I, I Afterwards, I thought they seemed helpful. William Ames said this. A man, uh, the conscience is a man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God of him. So it's a man's own judgment of himself about how God would judge him. Another, another writer said this. Conscience, as it does respect ourselves is the understanding power of our souls examining how matters do stand betwixt God and us, comparing His will revealed with our state, condition, and carriage in thoughts, words, or deeds, done or omitted, and passing judgment thereupon as the case requires. It's the man's understanding, it's the understanding powers in the soul about how matters stand between God and us. To put it simply, what the conscience is, is it is a, it is a part or faculty of man's reason. God gave to man this faculty, this member, that is able to measure him against the standard which he knows to be right. The word conscience itself is a derivative from two Latin words, which means knowledge with. Really, it means knowledge with another. It's to have knowledge that is shared knowledge. And that other is God himself. I know you're very familiar with this. We preached through this back sometime last year in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. We were told that the work of the law is written on their hearts, speaking specifically in that passage of the, of the, of the pagan world. The, law, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And for years, when I read that verse, I thought, okay, the conscience is the work of the law written in the heart. 
but not exactly, because the conscience also bears witness. It bears witness as well. The law written on the heart, the image of God, stamped in the heart, though marred by the fall, is measured by the conscience. The conscience is evaluating, this is the standard God gave, this is the condition of your behavior, and it's making the deduction that you're not living up to the standard that you know is right and wrong. That's why men desire to have terms like sin absolved from society. That's why the LGBTQIA plus community, they just keep adding letters to that, that's why that community, which you would think would just stay away from religion, away from the church, it's why it is coming in to mainline denominations and demanding approval. Because no matter what the world says, live and let live, there is a conscience in the heart of every man. And that conscience is saying, your lifestyle is a lifestyle of sin. And you will not be accepted by the God who made you. And you know that. And anyone who, who affirms that, whether it be a church that's just sitting there, whether it's a Christian, whether it's the presence of the Bible, it is a threat. It's a threat because the conscience knows that. That's why we don't have to go out into the streets and convince men that there is a God. They know there's a God. We don't have to convince men that they're sinners. We're just appealing to the conscience. All we're doing is we're, we're telling them what they already know. That's why men get so angry. That, that's what causes men when they hear that the law of God has a purpose. And so we preach the law not because we're preaching to men to be righteous. We're preaching to men that we're not righteous. And when we say what the law commands, there is an enemy behind their heart. or there, We have an ally, I should say, behind enemy lines prodding them from the back. Telling them, you know this is right. You know this is true. So the conscience is this faculty which God has given us that examines our souls and the standard of God which we know. And um, as Spurgeon said, this is one of the worst lodgers you can ever have in your house when it's quarrelsome. It's one of the curses of the world when it's corrupted. When it's in fits. Because it puts out the sun, all the brightness of the moonbeam. Nothing is beautiful to the man whose conscience is defiled. Whose conscience is accusing. Number two. What does the conscience do? We've already talked a little about this. But the conscience essentially is a witness. It declares facts. The conscience bears witness, said Paul. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the conscience is, is witnessing the facts of life measured by the standard of right and wrong. And it either accuses or it excuses man. So it's a witness and it's a judge. Listen to this. By, I, I, normally I try not to put a lot of quotes in here and try not to do a lot of reading, but as I said, this is not a normal sermon, so I, I want to give you this. I think it will be helpful to you. Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this, uh, picturing the conscience as God's court within us, where the last judgment is anticipated. Okay? So think of the conscience as the court on the inside, anticipating the final judgment. To clear this further concerning the nature of conscience, said Sibs, know that God hath set up in a man a court, and there is in man all that are in a court. Number one, there is a register to take notes, to take notes of what we've done. The conscience, he says, keeps diaries. It sets down everything. It's not forgotten. Though we think it is, it's still there. There is a register that writes it down. Conscience is that register. Matter of fact, in The Holy War, which is another one of John Bunyan's books, he called the conscience um, the recorder. Yes, he called him the recorder. 
And he said that the recorder, when he would get in these fits, he would cause the whole town of Mansoul to, to, to shake for fear. And even though they tried to silence him, he, he might get weak, but he was still there. And he still, at times, he would get people worked up. Number two, Sib said, there are also witnesses in a court. The testimony of conscience. Conscience does witness this, I have done, and this I have not done. So in a courtroom, keep the, the image, you have a register who's taking notes. You have witnesses who are bearing testimony. The conscience is both the recorder and the, te- the witness. Further, he says, you have an accuser. You have the state the plaintiff, you have the one who is making the accusation. There is an accuser with witnesses. The conscience is the accuser. There is a judge in a court. The conscience is the judge. There it doth judge. There it is well done. There it is ill done. The conscience is telling you this is good, this is evil. Then he says, number five, there is an executioner. The conscience is that too. Upon accusation and judgment, there is punishment. The first punishment is within a man always before he come to hell. The punishment is the punishment of conscience. It is a prejudice or a prejudgment of future judgment. There is a flash of hell presently after an ill act. If the understanding apprehend things, then the heart smites as David's heart smote him. The heart smite with grief for the present and fear for the time to come. God hath planted in the man this court of conscience, and it is God's hall, as it were, where he keeps his first judgment. He assizes. The conscience doth all the parts. It registereth. It witnesseth, it accuseth, it judgeth, it executeth, it does them all. You know what it's like to have a flash of hell? That's that, that vivid language, it's, it resonates with a heart that has been smoked, that has been convicted by an accusing conscience. This is what God has given us our conscience to do. To write down sin as the sin of Judah was written with a pen of iron, said Jeremiah. The point of a diamond engraved on the tablet of their heart. John Gerstner, who was R.C. Sproul's mentor, preached a sermon about hell. And in that, Gerstner made the case that the reference to the worm, where the place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched, he said he believed And convince me, and I believe, that that is a reference to the accusing conscience that will gnaw at men throughout eternity as a worm constantly eating the flesh of a rotting corpse. The worm never dies. It is a hell before hell. It is a hell in hell. The accusing conscience. Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I mentioned this to the guys when we were praying. There's, just, there's one little point here that's not in my sermon notes, but I wanted to, to bring out. Richard Baxter said, you know, uh, what if you have a conscience that's not a good conscience? What if you have a conscience that's been misinformed? Well, he said, if you follow it, then it could lead you into sin. You can't just do what Jiminy Cricket said and follow your conscience. Let your conscience be your God because it could be ill-informed. It could lead you into sin. But if you violate that conscience, well, now you have thrown off the authority which God's given you as a warning system. What do you do? It's necessary that our consciences are informed by the truth of Scripture. That's why Martin Luther, when he was standing before the Diet of Worms, one of the things that troubled him is he had this question in his mind, am I the only one that's wise? You got the whole church saying, look, you're wrong. You're a heretic. What you're preaching is heresy. And Luther looks at Scripture and he sees it plainly. Now that seems arrogant. And I would say that it's not wise to just take novel cavalier stands. We don't really struggle with that because we live in this hyper-individualized society where we, we just go to the Bible and say, well, I think it means this to me. 
I was raised in a particular tradition where that's, that's the way everybody got their theology. In fact, a lot of preachers in the circles where I was raised just kind of made it up as they went, I think. I was told when I was a young man that you can study all week, and as soon as you walk into the pulpit, God will change the sermon. And I thought, well, why couldn't God just help me early in the week if he can give me the words in the moment? And I was told when I was young, don't study the Bible because uncle so-and-so did that and he went crazy. He studied too much. And I thought, well, I'd rather go crazy studying God's Word than just live in my own thoughts. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And we laugh at that, but we live in a society that has all sorts of cavalier approaches to the Scripture. Well, just walk outside and walk around town and see all the various churches. They all do worship different. They all have different ideas. The sermons are all different. Some are just a stand-up comedy. Some are just a motivational speech. Some of the services just a sanctified rock concert. Why do we do what we do? Why does it matter? You know, there's all sorts of cavalier approaches. So we need our conscience and our mind and our heart informed by the Scripture. That we could be conformed to it. Our, our conscience must be captive to the Word of God. Our hearts must be captivated by the Gospel of God. Or we're, we're likely to be following an erring conscience. We can't just throw it off. We have to inform it. We have to educate it. We have to train it. The conscience is not infallible. It is the mechanism, the faculty and the reason of man that measures him by the highest standard of right that he knows. If you, wanna, if you want further reading, read John MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Conscience. Excellent book. But we must educate. We must enlighten and in, 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 inform our conscience with the truth so that we don't get in that state. How, how can we have a clean conscience? What does it mean to have a clean conscience, a good conscience? Well, the two, two passages we began with, Brother Don read in 1 Peter chapter 3, as well as in Hebrews chapter 9. Very helpful as we consider this. We'll turn to the passage in Peter first. He speaks in chapter 3, verse 21, by saying, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Obviously, he's not saying that water baptism saves. Clearly, he, he defines the parameters. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Sibs helped my thinking here. He said that essentially what you have is he's saying ex not external religion, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. He said that's another way of speaking of faith. Faith. This appeal to God is, is to believe God for a good conscience. Conscience. The way we have a good conscience, he said, is through faith. For God is the one who gave the conscience, and God is the one who cleanses the conscience. In Hebrews, we're told that if the blood of all these bulls and goats were able to outwardly, in an external way, purify the, the, the furniture of the sanctuary... Not in an equal fashion, but how much more, the writer said, will the blood of Christ purify our conscience, cleanse our conscience. The way we get rid of this accusing conscience is, is through faith. It is to be able to look at Scripture and say, God has promised that whoever comes to Christ, He will never cast out. I've come to Christ. 
Therefore, God will not cast me out. It is to inform the conscience with the gospel. This is why it is so necessary to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves, Not at the expense of, of, of the conscience. You know, I'm not saying that a Christian should never, never question, never doubt. I'm not saying that a Christian should never, uh, never look at themselves. They should. In fact, I, I agree with John Owen. I think you ought to load the conscience with guilt. Load it down. Lay it bare. Measure yourself honestly. But then look to Christ. The clean conscience or a good conscience doesn't mean that a man is perfect, but it means there's nothing that has not been dealt with. Nothing unconfessed, nothing unrepented of, nothing uncleansed by the blood of Christ. And when God cleanses the conscience, He changes the man. He, he, he causes the man to, to have different on the inside. He, he, he gives us a new heart. The heart, the conscience, rather, is now captive to God's Word. One of the greatest compliments, in my opinion, that I've heard of a man in modern history was given by R.C. Sproul to John MacArthur. They did this debate on baptism, which, you know, Sproul was, an, was a paedo-baptist. He baptized infants. And MacArthur was a cradle-baptist. He baptized only believers. And so R.C. Sproul asked MacArthur to do this debate. Uh, they were dear friends. This is a very heated debate, you know, this, this whole thing about baptism, and they go head to head on this. But after it was over, I think actually even the beginning, R.C. Sproul said of, of MacArthur, he said, I know, he said, one thing I know about Johnny Mac is that if, if we have a difference and I can show him clearly from the text that he's wrong, he'll change his position. But if I can't show him from the text, then he's not, going to show, he's not going to change. Well, that's what every Christian should be like. We should be committed not to our system. We should be committed not to our feelings or our thoughts. We should be committed to God's Word because everything hangs on that. I've been talking in Romans about what it means to believe God. Abraham, we're not told, believed in God, but Abraham believed God. Faith is more than just belief in something. It's not believing in the facts. It's not even being emotionally moved. But it is trust in, confidence in. Faith in God's Word is confidence in, trust in God's Word that this is true. I may not understand it. I may not understand how it fits together. I don't know how to do it. It doesn't always agree with me. But I believe it's right. It's to be able to go to God's Word and say, if I can only understand what God has said, then I'll know the truth. And the truth will make me free. That's the heart of the Christian. That's why Luther said when he found this, this great doctrine of justification, he had been assigned, because Luther, if you, if you know anything about him, Luther was this German monk, but he was very conscientious. He recognized, because he had an accusing conscience, that he was guilty before God. And he thought God was an evil tyrant. He didn't love God, he hated God, by his own testimony. But he, he agreed to be a monk because he was in this lightning storm, thought he was going to die, cried out to this saint, he said, I'll, I'll be a monk. He joins a monastery. He was in the Augustinian order, but he was just constantly bothering the priest. Because in Roman Catholicism, you go and you make your confession to the priest. And so Luther was remembering sin and being conscious of sin. He would just go in for hours at a time and just confess and confess until finally the priest said, Martin, go away and don't come back until you have something worth confessing. It was just a bother and a nuisance to them. And they gave him this teaching position to get him off their back. But in teaching, he was forced to deal with the text of Scripture. He got to Romans and it said that the gospel is good news because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He thought, that's not good news. God's righteousness is the reason we're in trouble. And then finally he realized this is not talking about God's inherent righteousness, but it's a righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith, an imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that can be the sinners. God takes, is a, is a holy God, this unholy person, and He gives them a righteousness. Without it, we can't see Him. We can't stand before Him. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. But God, in Christ, has made a righteousness available to cover our sin. So our conscience can be clean, not because we're sinless, not because we have never done wrong, not because we don't violate God's law, but because 
God has taken away the guilt and the filth of our lives in Christ. The blood of Christ has atoned for, has cleansed us from all of our sin. And so the way to have a clean conscience is through the gospel. It's to go to God and to be honest with God and to plead the blood of Christ, which is, which is all of our hope. It's not to deny your sin, because that's what some do. They just try to, you know, they write it off. They say, well, that's not sin. You know, I mean, it's not really sin. It's just a matter of Christian liberty. If you keep reading that confession, talking about Christian liberty, it addresses that whole concept of using Christian liberty as an excuse for sin. We live in a day where legalism is the only thing people fear. Well, we're much more prone to antinomianism, lawlessness. But no, we don't, we don't ignore sin. We don't write sin off. We load the conscience with our sin, and then we carry that sin to the cross, and we find deliverance. Our hope is not in our righteousness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness. And through faith, we can have that evil conscience, that evil heart cleansed and be given a clean and new conscience. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us some sense of all this. Lord, it's a big subject and a lot to cover. Um, thank you for this faculty that you've given us. It's not, a, not an easy guest to have in our homes. It's one that gnaws at us at night, gnaws at us when we're guilty. Oh God, what a blessing, what a mercy. How unloving it would be to just leave men. I mean, just, it would be just, but just to leave men thinking that all is well between them. But you've given us this conscience that condemns us and reminds us that we need Christ every day. Even as a Christian, even as a Christian, God, I, I, I know you know not just, not just unbelievers, even as a Christian. The conscience still reminds us that we need Christ. Thank you for it. I pray that it would become a friend, that we would see it as a friend. Oh God, make us to be conscientious people. God, have mercy on us where we have violated or wounded our own conscience. Would you please make us to be sensitive and tender I pray once again, as I remember praying so many years ago, would you cause my heart to smite me over small things? That I might have a heart like David's that is after your own. Lord, we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.